Hi friends, welcome to the Ian Khan Show. You're watching an Aftershock special episode. My guest today is Dr. Chu. He's the chair of IoT at Alchemist Accelerator. He's a former president of Oracle, and he served as a lecturer at Stanford for over 30 years. Dr. Chu is a co-collaborator to the book Aftershock, and he's one of the world's most renowned futurists. It gives me such a pleasure to welcome Timothy Chow to my show. And today we have with us Dr. Timothy Chow, and Tim is a really great friend. We are co-collaborators and uh, contributors to Aftershock. This book has been put together by a good friend um, at Abundant World Institute, uh, John Schroeder. Please give him a shout on social media. And uh, Aftershock is a collective uh, compilation of essays by the world's top thinkers, top minds, people like Tim who um, have done so much for the industry, and these are the people that, that we should look upon when it's, it's, it's about the future. Tim, welcome to the Ian Khan Show. Thank you, Ian, it's a pleasure. Tim, I read your essay with, with great intensity and, and there's just so much in there. You've, you've, you've been out there for so many years, you've done incredible work. And um, among many things, you've, uh, in, at Stanford, you've done some incredible things back in the day. G tell us who you are, G give me your snapshot of yourself? How, what do you consider yourself to be? <laughs> That's always a tricky question, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let me say what I have been blessed with. I came to Silicon Valley a long time ago, like over 30 years ago, to work for one of the original planner for startups, Tandem Computers. So I have had a long and fruitful life in, on the commercial side. So at Tandem, I, you know, I worked for Larry, ran the beginning of a cloud business at Oracle. I sit on a couple of public company boards these days. So, uh, you know, a long career there. But also equally fortunate, uh, I actually started teaching at Stanford in 1982 uh, when, this is weird to think about, you could not get a bachelor's degree in computer science at Stanford in 1982. <laughs> So I taught introductory computer architecture for about 15 years. I gave myself a leave of absence because I had to fly to Bali to do a sales kickoff meeting and get back in 36 hours. And I thought that was a little ridiculous. <laughs> so uh, I gave myself, it turned out six or seven year leave of absence. And about 12 years ago when I left Oracle, I went back and actually started one of the first classes on cloud computing. Uh, we still teach it once a year. I do the first and last lecture, and in between, I have guest lecturers who are CEOs of public companies, and we had a who's who there. So, a little bit of both. Yeah, that's incredible. That's incredible, and and I can only imagine all of the products, technologies, things that we use in in everyday life today. How many how many of those have somehow passed through your hands in in the capacity that you've uh, worked at um, the intellectual, you know, uh, capacity and, and talent that you worked with over at Stanford over all these years. It's, it's incredible. So thank you so much for doing that for us and for all the generations that are to come. Let's talk about the current times and let's talk about Alvin Toffler, who 50 years ago wrote Future Shock and Aftershock is, is really the uh, thought about what Toffler wrote and, and how the world has changed. Uh, I don't think Toffler ever wrote, uh, or did he write about pandemic striking us and us uh, responding to them 
in a way that we are right now. We're all living through uh, the era of COVID-19 right now, and um, the world has responded to it in different ways. What are your thoughts on what have we become as a result of this pandemic? Yeah, I think, you know, maybe uh, when you live in Silicon Valley, you're always an optimist. So I like to think about, you know, what's going to happen after, I said, after COVID shock. It's a way to think about this. Uh, Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, Is there an advantage? Do we come out somehow better? Obviously, we know all the downside things. And I've been reflecting a lot on this lately, and I think there's three big areas that could change dramatically because of what's happening. Uh, One is healthcare, two is education, and three is corporate life. So let me just talk a little about healthcare. I'm actually spending a lot of time in that space right now. So if you look at healthcare today, it is largely operates in the disconnected world. Uh, The doctors are disconnected, the information is disconnected, the people are disconnected, right? The machines are disconnected. Um, I actually am looking at uh, a Project Connect all the healthcare machines and all the children's hospitals in the world. There's about 500,000 of those machines in the world today. And I'll tell you, less than 1% of them are connected. Now you go, well, why would it matter to connect things? All right, well, what's interesting is in 1994, when we connected about a million computing machines, that's when we came up with eBay and Netscape and all the first generation of internet companies, right? So a million's kind of a critical mass number. So I'm thinking a million computing machines, 500,000 healthcare machines, that's kind of in the same ballpark, right? And if we were able to do this, right? If you think about it, what we're going through is a global healthcare challenge, right? Global, not local, right? Well, if we actually had all these machines connected, let me just hypothesize something. We already right now, people are working on the idea that a CT scanner, a CT scan can be used to determine whether you have COVID or not, right? Now, in order to use, to create highly accurate AI doctors to be able to pull this off, those algorithms with a crap load of data. So if I had all 100,000 CT scanners in the world connected, I could supply a ton of data to build highly accurate, right, diagnostics. And furthermore, if I actually could deploy those diagnostics directly to the machines, now every x-ray, every CT scan that's ever taken, I can determine whether you or I had COVID at scale, right? I mean, this is not about doing a lot of chemistry and sending swabs around anymore. So I think the potential and people in the healthcare world are already seeing this kind of push to telemedicine. It's kind of the first phase of these ideas, getting rid of some of the stupid rules that we have globally around this, right? I think it's enormous potential to radically change healthcare on a global basis. And you might make the point. Yeah. Tim, what do you think, how long is it going to take us to, you know, hypothetically connect these machines together? What are you looking at? How many years? Um, actually, the project we're working on, it could be, yeah, I'll call it a handful of years or okay. less. Okay. No, it's not, let me make a point. 
it's not a technological challenge, by the way. This, yes. This does not require developing any gravity physics. And what I was thinking about is, is uh, you know, apart from the hardware side of it, which of course is, is the easy part, is when will we be able to exchange data at a pace where it really brings out results at such a hyper-connected um, infrastructure or within the, within the medical industry? Uh, and after these things are connected, you know, we're churning out these CT scans or we're processing a lot of information. So I was thinking about the underlying uh, capacity for us uh, to, to process information. Yeah, well, I think what's cool right now, this is all like, you know, coming together at once. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this or you've ever seen it, but Jeff Dean at Google Brain built a really nice chart to describe artificial intelligence and the progress that has been made so rapidly. And basically that chart says, if I can throw infinite compute and infinite data, I can get increasing degrees of accuracy yeah. monotonically, okay? So let's talk about compute. Well, the beauty right now is in what I call the center cloud, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, et cetera, the ability to buy compute or almost no money has already arrived. So we have the capability not only to have enormous amounts of compute, but enormous amounts of storage, again, for almost no money. So those two things from an infrastructure point of view are already, have already arrived. What we all need to make this, you know, radical move in healthcare is the data. Got to get a hold of the data. Yeah. And this is also collection of data. This is, uh, this is not just data being being used and I and I, I do work across the world and I see a lot of difference between data collection some in some places we're still collect there's no data collection and in other places we're still using paper so I think we're still struggling a lot of people in the world are struggling with even basic automation and basic processing of data and I think that's a big challenge because there's no equality of uh, um, the, you know the process that we're following so uh, no, but I, I, I hear you. Yeah. What about uh, education? You mentioned uh, healthcare. You mentioned uh, education as the second point. Well, education, I mean, this is really interesting to think about, right? Uh, all the kids are being homeschooled, Stanford, right? Uh, basically, the, uh, the whole winter quarter, the whole spring quarter. Uh, there's actually nobody's going to be on campus during the summer, so... We're going to go a while. I mean, some people speculate it may go into next year, right? Yes. Everybody's already experiencing this so-called online learning thing, right? Um, but I think right now, you know, frankly, most of what's been built is, it, <laughs> said a different way, if it's just a professor delivering the same old lecture in front of a green screen, <laughs> I mean, okay. <laughs> uh, how interesting is that? Right. Um, and I think what we're headed to, or what I would like to believe we're headed to, I don't know if you ever heard of the term inverted classroom, but the inverted classroom concept is you don't actually show up in class to listen to a lecture. Yeah. A, a class is a place for discussion, for question, not for information dissemination, right? Because I have computers and, you know, web, blah. And, and this gets you to thinking about a, another step in this, which is for a second, think about, and I'm talking about college education, obviously, 
right now. If you think about a college education, a college physics class, okay, how much is how much is that different? A introductory college physics class over the past 10, 20 years, right? Yes. Now, some of your listeners may have heard of Richard Feynman. Feynman was a, a noted physics uh, professor at Caltech. It is widely acknowledged that his lectures were like stunning, right? Okay. Why don't we just have Dr. Feynman delivering the physics lecture from a single physics textbook rather than 25 different ones, right, to the globe, right? I mean, why do we have to have all of this labor that's actually recapitulating yep. what could be done very right. simply and moving the classroom not to a classroom of let me go through some slides and click through stuff, but to an environment where we're entertaining education, questions, et cetera. And this has a fundamental bearing on economics. Because if you think about it, right now, to get a college education, I, I have put three kids through college. If you think about it, it's a, basically a quarter million dollars a kid yep. and going up, right? Why is it a quarter million dollars? Because there's two fundamental components to the cost structure. Physical plant, <laughs> all these beautiful buildings, yep. and human labor. Yes. Right? Exactly. exactly. I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. We could completely shift, right, what education might look like, open education globally. Yes. It will challenge the very meaning of what does it mean to get a Stanford, Harvard, Yale, whatever degree, which is, by the way, there are a bunch of kids asking right now, well, why am I paying full tuition <laughs> when I'm not even on campus? Yeah. Good question, right? So I think there's huge potential to decrease the cost and increase the quality of education on a global basis. And people are being forced into it, right? I mean, everybody's having to live in the online world now. It's not just an adjunct. Yep. It's the way we live, right? I've, I've uh, quite honestly, I've always felt that, uh, and it, could be you could agree or disagree, but the educational um, industry is 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 very cutthroat. And if you look at Europe and you look at UK uh, or America or Canada, there's so many universities and colleges, and they've got students. So the, the education is a big business, and um, it's it has worked in the favor of educational institutions to operate as they as they have. But I think this this post COVID nineteen world is is going to get them to think again their, what their strategy is, maybe go, I think, more towards immersive education or uh, virtual or mixed reality education. And I think they'll do equally well. But it's also a, a, a disruptor, for the lack of a better word, for the education industry, for universities to think differently about how do they deliver education and what does it mean to be an institution. Um, if you look at uh, the Khan Academy, it's the online teaching yes. resource uh, and Khan Academy is virtual. They don't have any facilities, but they have millions of students, millions and millions of students. So is that an educational institution that we could say, hey, is a quality education and it's revered? I think we're changing the definition in the future uh, as well. Looks very different uh, for, for the world of education. I don't know if you wanted to uh, add something to that. No, I, 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 I like your example, Khan, et cetera. I, think we're we are being forced uh, we are, our eyes are being opened a lot of these words 
yeah. that might speed the transformation of which, I mean, many people have talked about how we might do this. Yeah. But it's always fallen on deaf ears, right? Absolutely. And by the way, I mean, I'm super grateful to Stanford for uh, giving us things such as um, Coursera. Andrew Eng, I believe, was oh. one of the co-founders. And some yeah. other people from Stanford started that. Um, yeah. And going, going back to what you've written in the book as well, is you conducted the first hackathon in Stanford. I want to know what that was like. What was it like to do something so radical, perhaps at that time, that was never done before? And you've written that you found this new way in which software was being created. So I think today as well, there's a new way of learning. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, just just to be clear, my, my role in the first hackathon, which by the way was six years ago, it's not that long ago, uh, I, I helped the kids fundraise because <laughs> I know a lot of people, right? Uh, but the, the kids, the Stanford kids, really were the ones that organized it, et cetera. Uh, and it's been enormously, we just got done, interestingly enough, just got done with the last one. Uh, they get a ton of applicants from around uh, the world. Uh, they come for a couple of days, they build software, et cetera. Um, it's very fascinating. And, and the thing I wrote about in the book is they said, I arrived there, this is now six years ago, and I, I'm not gonna stay up all night and drink Red Bull with them. But I showed up and just kind of talking to them, looking at what they're building. Yes. And I'm realizing that they are building so complex software that we never would have thought of, you know, 10 years ago, because so many things at a fundamental level have changed, right? I mentioned cloud computing, right? Uh, you, you don't have to have computers in the room of the hackathon. You've got computers all around the planet, as many as you'd like. You have enormous quantities of open source now available. Many different pieces of software are now delivered as web services at a high level. So the way in which these next generation applications are being built, are being built on top of enormous building blocks. It's not at all like, you know, I'll call it when I was a kid, <laughs> we were working with really small things, right? The, today, I'm working with whole scale applications, whole scale farms of data, et cetera. And my ability to compose these things together to deliver applications is like a light year different than just even 10 years ago. Absolutely. Uh, Tim, I, I know we have limited time with you today. I want to talk about the last point that you mentioned is yep. uh, corporate life, is uh, work life. Uh, of course, we're just, you know, finding out, I mean, a lot of people are finding out that working from home is very different. It's very um, uh, challenging. It's very rewarding. Uh, what do you anticipate to happen? Do you think we'll, we'll ever go back to way, the way things were? Uh highly unlikely, but, but again, when you put the lens of a light at the end of the tunnel, uh, I'll tell you a quick story. So I had Eric Rand, who's the CEO, founder of Zoom, uh, guest lecture in my class last year, okay? So uh, during the class, he makes the comment, he says, well, if I was gonna start a company today, I would have no headquarters, right? So, you know, when you're listening to it, you go, yeah, well, you're running a web conferencing company. <laughs> of course you would say something like that, right? But of course, today, we're all operating with no headquarters, right? And we all know there's all these interesting advantages of that. I mean, everything from the cost of real estate to the ability to bring people who, you know, from a variety of places in the world together, et cetera. 
And I think today we're doing kind of an infantile version of this. We're having lots of Zoom meetings or Teams meetings or whatever. But I would counsel people to think a little bit. I, I, several years ago, I actually ran a project to try to decompose World of Warcraft. So I don't know if you've ever seen World of Warcraft is one of these massive multiplayer games. And what we were trying to figure out is, so I'll describe World of Warcraft abstractly. A group of people who have never met each other from around the world come together to accomplish a task and go away. Yeah. Yeah. And they do it time after time after time. And you're like, we would like to do that in the world of work. Yes. So why? How does this happen? So we spent about nine weeks trying to basically reverse engineer World of Warcraft to try to understand this. I won't touch all the things, but let me just make a couple of interesting points. Number one, what was so important in Warcraft was the idea of a quest. A quest is, and the number one quest is killing a creature. Okay, something now, exciting, yes. Something exciting, and more importantly, something when we finish as a team, we all know is done. Yes, yes. Dead, right? So when we try to engineer work in the no headquarters world, in a world of work, Maybe we need to think that way, right? We need to think about having units of work where I know I killed the monster, right? As core, number one. Number two, in Warcraft, it is clear there are complementary and complete roles. So I'll give the simplest example. You're a healer and I'm a warrior. We have two different roles. Well, as a warrior, I cannot heal. As a healer, I cannot kill. But if we're gonna go kill the monster, I need some healers and I need some warriors. Yes. So architecting the world of work to have complementary and complete roles, again, we, we should be able to do this in the world of work, right? And then the last one, which is totally fascinating is, in the world of work, we always like, oh, well, you're a, you're a good QA guy, you're a good marketing person. Well, how, how do I know that, right? You have no evidence of anything. In Warcraft, actually, when you look at the character, you know that he or she is a level 63 healer. <laughs> yeah. Because it's clear what their skills are and how they acquired those skills. Again, in the world of work, we can start moving this way. I mean, whether that, I mean, in the current world in software development, many of the kids coming into the workforce, they already have their own GitHub, GitLab accounts, right? So they go into the interview and say, well, you want to look at my code? Yes, <laughs> right. exactly. Yeah. This ability to now start to see the skill level and to understand that in the world of work, if we could do that, right? These are some of those attributes that I think if we redesign work for the no headquarters world, we can do what has happened in Warcraft hundreds of times and in effect be much more nimble companies at much lower cost points, able to get to far greater talent because we're not forcing everybody to live in San Francisco. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Uh I just I, I know we're almost uh, heading towards the end uh, uh, of uh, of our 
uh, conversation. I'm just looking, I wanted to say something from what you've written. And uh, for those of uh, the viewers uh, that are that are watching, there's really incredible insights in in the book. You've written a few years ago. I uh, no, not this one. Sorry, you've written the services sector represents more than 85 percent of the U.S. economy, and we're looking at economic downturn right now amidst COVID-19. So, what is service? Is it answering the phone nicely from Bangalore? Is it flipping burgers at In-N-Out? No service is the delivery of information that is personal and relevant to you. In today's changing times and looking fast forward 10, 15 to 20 years from now, uh, do you see services being a kind of a big part of what we should uh, look at doing? Is it services that would drive organizations and companies or is it more like more products? Well, I think uh, to be clear, service can be a product. <laughs> mm -hmm. If it's delivered in a repetitious way, right? So, my personal, I mean, I've been spending a lot of time in the world of agriculture and construction and healthcare, not, you know, not in financial services, retail, et cetera. But if you look at it, I, here, let me just give you the example that I think most people can get. Um, if you go to your Amazon.com webpage, which everybody's on these days, right? Yes. If you look at it, I'll say, what is most of that website trying to do? It's trying to say, hey, Ian, this is stuff you should be interested in. People like you, you know, like this, et cetera, right? It's yeah. trying to deliver you information that is personal and relevant to you, right? The transactional system, right, is the little stupid shopping cart in the upper right-hand corner. How important is that? It's not. I mean, yeah, it has, it has to work, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I don't care, right? Correct. Now go to your favorite banking website, <laughs> And what you will see is a giant shopping cart. That's all it's there for. Uh, move money from savings to checking, blah, blah, blah. Why doesn't it say, you know, hey, people like you sold uh, their, their stock portfolio today because they were smart and got out before COVID hit or whatever, right? And if you go through every sector, right, whether retail, financial services, right, construction, et cetera, and you start to realize that what we really want to know, what each of us really wants to know is information, right? About what is relevant to me as a forklift operator, what's relevant to me as a doctor, what's relevant to me as a buyer. We are progressively more able to get that data, but how do we make it personal and relevant to you? Big question, right? Yeah. But if we can, I will be on that website every day, right? I'll be using that service every day because it's my service. Absolutely. Right? My healthcare service, right? My I think a lot to do with personalization and really communicating with people at, at their level. I, I really believe services are, are so critical for us to have um, great experiences and then go back and buy those products. It's, it's a cyclical process. Um, and I think, the future is becoming more experiential with all new techn technologies. Uh, and so I think services are definitely here uh, to stay. So I, I, think, I think we're almost out of time. I want you to, uh, to leave us with uh, where can people find you? Where can they look you up, look at your incredible work? <laughs> well, uh, I, I mean, easy as LinkedIn. You know, type in my name, you'll find me. Uh, that's an easy answer. I publish some on Medium, and you'll you could find that as well. 
Uh, I have a Twitter account. I don't know that I tweet that often, right? But, you know, there are a number of different ways. Um, and, uh, you know, people are, are welcome to reach out. Perfect. Thank you so much. Tim, Tim, leave us, with, leave us with one piece of advice when we're looking at actively creating the future, when we want to do good things, when we want to be successful. Give us one piece of advice that we should do right away. What should we, everybody, me, and everybody who's watching, what should we focus on? Curiosity. Okay. Stay curious. Learn how to be curious. Teach curiosity. I often ask people, do you think you can teach curiosity? Because at the end of the day, in my opinion, every innovation, everything that's new happens because someone keeps asking questions. Yeah. I, I, I always start out my Stanford class. I go, look, uh, the quality of a student is not measured by what you know, but by the questions you ask. Learn to ask it. Tim, I am forever indebted. Thank you so much for being part of this podcast. Thank you. Friends, unfortunately, <laughs> Tim and I had some uh, problems with our audio towards the end uh, of this um, amazing session, an amazing conversation that we had. Uh, but I hope you, uh, you, you enjoyed it and you definitely gathered uh, some points from it. Thank you so much to Tim and thank you for listening. Hey friend, this is Ian Khan. If you liked what you saw on my video, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel and be inspired every single day with innovative content that keeps you fresh, updated, and ready for the future. For more information, also visit my website at iankhan.com. 